All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. This is our weekly look at the Torah portion. Torah portion this week is Yisro, which talks about the experience at Sinai. This talks about the experience at Sinai, a.k.a. the moment of the giving of the Torah. That is the main feature of this week's Torah portion. But, but, we are going to talk about a lot of, well, the focus today is on Judaism and disability. Understanding the role of Judaism within disability, understanding the role of disability within Judaism, how the two worlds, if you will, how, how, how everything comes together. I was, so just, just a, a kind of a taking you behind the scenes of how this works. Torah studies, there are some classes that I create from scratch, well, not from scratch. I mean, there's always existing, always existing stuff. But some, some classes I create, some classes, there's a curriculum that's kind of put together, and then to a certain extent or another, I, uh, I, I work off of modify, um, adapt, etc. These are like the JLI classes, the six-week classes, um, and, and Torah studies as well. Torah studies, I'm on the board, I'm on the editorial board for that, so I have input in the classes. But to my surprise, when preparing this week's class, I opened up to text 15, and there I see a quote from the book that I wrote on inclusion. I didn't know about it, didn't know about it, it's certainly on topic, but there it is, text 15, you guys have the booklets here, you can skip to the last text, I think it's the last text. They saved the best for last, maybe, I don't know. Conclusion. So, Ari, you're a famous author. Oh. Yeah, well, there, it's, if, it's in, if it's in Torah studies, then it's for sure, huh? Because the first time that we have a text. The first time. They should have had a bio with a picture of the headshot. Yeah, listen, all right, I'll speak to the guys. Fine. So, it's a very special topic and a topic that is very dear to my heart. And I know it's also dear to the, to the hearts of many of you that are joining. And uh, let's jump in. So the context of our discussion is the experience at Sinai, because that's, that's, that's the, focus, the focus of this week's Torah portion. We're going to begin with text 1a. And I, I feel like I can give a very quick background, but I think we all know the background, right? Jews are in Egypt, slaves for 210 years, Exodus, 10 plagues, splitting of the sea, the Jews are counting 49 days. On day 50, they receive the Torah at Sinai. That's the story, right? That's the narrative. Um, as a background to this, the Torah tells us how they got to Sinai and what happened at that experience and et cetera. So I'm going I'm to read this. It's a little bit of a long text. It's going to give us the, a little bit of the, the biblical narrative surrounding this episode. I'm share my screen for those of you online. Um, in person or with the book or booklet, or if you have a book, uh, you can always get these on Amazon. Um, saw you at Sinai, everyone at Sinai, text 1A. This is from Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read this. All right, verse number one. Okay, you guys with me? All right, here we go. So it says, the Torah says, In the third month of the children of Israel's departure from Egypt, on this day they arrived in the Sinai desert. Okay, so the Torah is giving us a little bit of basic background. You know, I, I remember when learning how to write, in school, they used to say you want to give the setting. You want to give the setting, right? It was always like an, it was a dark and stormy night. That's always, that's always a good setting. So here the Torah doesn't say it was a dark and stormy night necessarily, but it does say that it was the third month from the Exodus that they arrived on this day, which is Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the third month, 
when we're in the Sinai Desert, so we have time and place. Sinai Desert, that's good. Now we know where we're talking about. The third, first day of Rosh Chodesh Sivan, great. And we know who. We know who, where, and when. Okay, verse 2. The Torah tells us they journey from Rafidim. And they arrived in the Sinai Desert. And they encamped in the desert. And Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. They encamped there um, opposite the mountain. Let's continue verse number three. Uh, sorry. Oh, look at this. The, uh, this. the skipping of the text. So skipping the verses. So now we're up to verse 16. I guess we cut out. Uh, this is the abbreviated version. It came to pass on the third day when it was morning. Um, this is after multiple days of dialogue and preparation. So it was the third day of the three days of preparation. This is going to be the day that the Torah is actually given. We're now on page 28 in the booklet. Page 28. You can see the page numbers on the top right. So it came to pass on the third day when it was morning that there were thunderclaps and lightning flashes and a thick cloud was upon the mountain and the sound of a very powerful blast of, the, of a shofar and the entire nation that was in the camp shuddered. So you have the Torah describes this kind of um, multimedia experience or this kind of light and sound show. It's, there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a cloud and sounds and shofars and all this stuff. Okay, and the people are shuddering. That means there's like there's awe and trepidation that's filling the camp, filling the, the, the children of Israel. Moses brought the people out toward God from the camp, and they stood at the bottom of the mountain. Verse 18, and the entire Mount Sinai smoked, because God had descended upon it in a fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of the kiln. And the entire mountain quaked violently. So again, the mountain is shaking, the people are shaking, the, the mountain is smoking, it's on fire. This thing is gewaldic, it's, uh, it's out of control. The sound of the shofar grew increasingly stronger. Moses would speak and God would answer him with a voice. Let's continue verse 20. God descended upon Mount Sinai to the peak of the mountain and God summoned Moses to the peak of the mountain and Moses ascended. So God comes down, Moses goes up, and this is the great meeting of, uh, of humankind and, and the divine. Verse 25, we're again fast-forwarding a few verses. So Moses went down to the people and said this to them. These are the Ten Commandments. And then we have the next chapter, verse number one. God spoke all these words to respond. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of, out of, the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, etc. And that be, thus begins the Ten Commandments. So here in this excerpt, the Torah describes how the Jews arrive in the Sinai Desert at the foot of the mountain, a little bit about the days preceding the revelation at Sinai, the morning of the revelation at Sinai when there's all of these lights and sounds and lightning and thunder and you know, the cloud and the, the shaking of the mountain, all this stuff is going on and the mountain is smoking. And, it's, and then it describes, of course, the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And that is the bulk of this. That, that's not the bulk, but that's like the, the major, like the highlight of this week's Torah portion. One other note to mention before we get into uh, a strong focus on, on the topic, which will lead us into the topic, is a very curious word that appears in the verses that we read. But it's a word that appears in Hebrew. The Torah says, Vayichan sham Yisrael negrar. This was actually a um, topic of conversation um, at DPP, Daily Power Parasha today. But the Torah says, Vayichan sham Yisrael, and he and camp there. He. Vayichan in the singular. Not they. But in the Hebrew, you can make something from a, from a singular to a plural with one suffix. Instead of Vayichan, it's Vayachanu. Vayichan is he camped. 
By Yachanu is they camped. Yachanu, right? That's why we say nu. It means we're, we're all y'all. No, I'm kidding. That's not what nu means. Um, right, but the, the u here in this case is a suffix, means the plural. So Vayichan is he camped. Vayachanu is they camped. So here's this Vayichan Sham Yisrael, and he, Israel, encamped there. He's singular. So what's the singular? Rashi says, text 1b. Um, Marnin, if you're up to reading it nice and loud, please read it. I'm going to share it here on the screen. But I took the big one. Now let's, uh, let's divvy up the next one. Text 1b, page, page 29. Is, the sing, is in the singular form, denoting that they encamp there as one person with one heart, as opposed to all the other encampments that were divided with complaints and stuff. So Rashi, thank you, Rashi says something interesting. Based on, of course, our sages, Vayichan, a singular means that the Jewish people, two million plus strong, were all there as one, one person, one heart, one aim, one objective, one inspiration, as opposed to other journeys of the Jews that were filled with strife and complication and machloket and division and divisiveness, etc. Everybody had a good seat. They weren't complaining. It was great. Everybody was happy. Jews not complaining. Right. So Linda's like, that's impossible. And that's what Rashi's saying. All the other times, there were complaints. Right? Um, you guys know the expression, two Jews, four opinions? Which one do you know? I don't know. You know two Jews, three opinions? See, Marnie and I have a different opinion about that one. That was a setup. That was a total setup. I just set that up. You guys, I mean, that, we fell for it. You, yes, walked right into that. My point is, we can't even agree on the joke about disagreeing, the, and, and and that's and that's what it comes down to. There's always machlokes, and the truth is, machloket means uh, you could say in a nice way diversity, but it doesn't really mean diversity. It means um, friction, and, and and the truth is, when you look throughout the encampments in the Torah. By this one, they fought about water, and by the, they complained about water, and this one, they complained about food, and this one, they complained about, I don't know, it's too hot, it's too cold, take it back, whatever. They complained about everything. And they fought with each other, and people were at each other's throats, and maybe not literally, but on some level. And here, everyone was on the same page. It's a beautiful thing. In, the, in preparation for receiving the Torah, it was the unifier. It was the great unifier. People were united with one aim, one purpose, one goal, and it was Gavaldi. It was beautiful. Okay. To highlight the degree to which everybody was on the same page. There's a powerful mechilta. Mechilta is one of the medrash. Medrash. By the way, if you want to know what a medrash is, or what a mechilta is, and what a kabbalah is, and what a chassidus is, and what a talmud is, and what a... You ever wonder what that is? All these different things? I'm working together with JLI on a course. I'm one of the editors of a course that's going to happen like, I don't know, a year or a year and a half away. It's a while. Called The People and the Books. Those are the people of the books. It's The People and the Books. It goes through all of these categories and all the major books just to get clarity on what, the, what everything is and how it's different. And we're going to do some learning within each class, learning about that genre and that topic. So it's not a, a chalent. You know, typically it's a chalent. Everything's a medrash. The medrash says, the medrash says, the Talmud says. What's a medrash? What's the Talmud? When, who, what, where? Okay, we're going to talk about that in that course. Stay tuned for a little while. Back to our story. So the mechilta, which is a medrash, which, you know, whether that means something or not, is, well, you know, that's up to you. But anyway, the, the medrash says the following. Something marvelous happened at Sinai. 
Not only was everybody united in the same purpose, yes, we're on board, God, we want the Torah, yes, we'll accept it, we'll do it, Nasev and Ishma, more than that. Mechilta says that personal difference melted away. If somebody couldn't hear, they could hear. If somebody couldn't see, they could see. If somebody couldn't walk, they could walk. If somebody couldn't stand, they could stand. If something couldn't under, someone couldn't understand, they could understand. In other words, a person who otherwise had perhaps a disability at Sinai, preceding Sinai, something magical happened, something miraculous happened, and all disability vanished. And all and everyone had full ability or ability in all the areas of disability. Where does it say this? It, sa it says this, no, it says by Sane. It says this in text number two. Let's pull up text number two. You can open up your books to page 30 or your handouts to page 30. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And um, Elio, if I can ask you, please, Elio, who's enjoying the babka, by the way, and I noticed that I called on you right as you were, huh? I'm now swallowing. Okay, good. Wait. By the way, no, this is a plug for in person. In person, I get to interrupt your babka eating by calling on you. <laughs> All right, so Elio, please read text number two from the Mechilta. Powerful text, nice and loud. Rabbi Yelazer, Yeah. Rabbi Yelazer says, to inform us of the greatness of Israel, the Torah tells us that when they stood together at Mount Sinai to receive the Torah, they did not have among them any blind people, as it says, and the whole nation saw the Torah tells us that they did not have among them any mutes, as it stated, and the whole nation responded as one. The Torah teaches that they did not have among them deaf people, as it stated, all that God says we will do and we will hear. How do we know that they did not have among them lame people? Because it is stated, and they stood at the bottom of the mountain. The Torah teaches us that they did not have among them any simpletons, as it stated, you have been shown in order to know. So the, the measure says that at Sinai, at Sinai, something happened in preparation for this experience or in conjunction with this experience that anyone who couldn't see could see. Anyone who couldn't speak could speak. Anyone who couldn't hear could hear. Anyone who couldn't walk could walk or could stand. And anyone who couldn't understand understood. Clearly, the, the Medrash is talking about disability. And the Medrash is saying that on a, on a quite literal level, at Sinai, Disability vanished. No more disability. People with disabilities, people with hearing or vision impairments, etc., suddenly were able to hear, were able to see, able to stand, able to walk, able to talk. Okay. Which leads us to a question. It seems like in conjunction with the Torah experience, getting the Torah, all of the Jewish people had full ability. Didn't last, nor is it true today. And the reality is that people have disabilities. And the question, and this is going to be the core question of today's class. The core question is going to be, someone who has a disability, someone who is unable to see or to hear or to speak, what is their role within Judaism, within Torah and mitzvot? Is it 
a compromise role? Is it the best you can do? Is it, is it a full role? How do we understand? How do we contextualize? It seems like there was a clear effort, a divine effort, a miraculous effort to, by God to ensure that everybody at Sinai was standing and hearing and speaking and answering and right, that, 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 was, that, that there was no disability. We don't live in that world. We don't live in that world. We live in a world where, I mean, I would say that everyone has, a, on some level, a disability. Who can do everything? But I, I know we're not talking about maybe that level. But, but this is the reality. And so how do we understand what's the Torah perspective on disability? What's the Torah perspective? What's the Jewish perspective on uh, people with disabilities vis-a-vis Torah and mitzvot, etc.? So the first thing we need to establish if someone cannot perform a mitzvah, if someone does not, can, does not have the ability to do a mitzvah, they can't. They physically can't. Emotionally they can't. Like whatever. If they can't do a mitzvah. So does that mean that, that it's a compromised situation? Does that mean that the person is any less than? God forbid, of course not. So the first, the first text we're going to introduce in this topic, which is a very... Powerful topic and a very sensitive topic. The first text we're going to introduce is from the Talmud. Tractate of Adazara, text 3a. Okay, let's do this one right now. Let's pull it up. Lolly, would you like to read text 3a? Um, too long. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the merciful one exempts a victim of circumstances beyond their control. There we go. So the Talmud says, thank you. By the way, it's good to have you back. Because I missed your sense of humor. <laughs> it aligns with mine. Um, it's just been a little while. Yeah. So it says, the Talmud says, the Talmud says, it's actually, you know what, as short as that was in English, it's three words in Hebrew. It says that, that when it comes to a victim of circumstances beyond their control, I can't, I can't do it. It's not my fault. I can't do it. So the merciful, like Rachmanas, you know the word Rachmanas? Means mercy, right? But Rahmana means God who is merciful. Patre, Pater, exempts. Pater. Patre. Patre. Huh? Patre. This is Aramaic, it's not Hebrew. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole situation. So in this context, it's from the Talmud. So Ainis Rahmana Patre. That the the merciful one, Rahmana, Hashem, God Almighty, the merciful one, exempts a victim under control. So somebody. Let's just be, let's give an example. Somebody, God forbid, can't hear. If somebody has a hearing impairment, so what mitzvah can't they do? What famous mitzvah that can't they do? They can't hear the shofar, right? They can't. So it's a mitzvah to hear the shofar, the shmokal shofar. You can't hear the shofar. Or the Megillah. Uh, so, so the question is, so ah, so, so, so what does that mean? What does it mean? The Talmud says it, it means that they're exempted from the mitzvah. You can't do the mitzvah, you're exempted from the mitzvah. That's it, simple, right? If you can't do the mitzvah, you're exempted from the mitzvah. So it's not, so nothing, there's no, there's no, um, it's, there's no law. It's not held against the person. Now, why is God called the merciful one? So look at this beautiful insight. Look at this beautiful insight, 3B. You know what, Lolly? Because it was so short, let's take, take 3B, please. Uh, there's much precision to the Talmud's language of Rahmana, literally the merciful one, rather than the typical, it is stated, 
the Talmud, the Talmud which wishes to convey that the Torah is entirely merciful and that God gives mercy, and it is from this sense of compassion that the dispensation flows. So, thank you. So, Rabbi Shaul, Yosef Shaul, and Nathanson, Nathanson, okay, he writes in the Shiloh Meshav, that's his book, he writes. Oh, nice. He was the guy that ruled. I'm looking at his bio quickly. He's the one that permitted, first permitted machine-made matzah. Phew. I guess Manischewitz is very grateful yes. for, uh, for this rabbi. Yehuda. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Yehuda machine-made matzahs. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, good. <laughs> so this rabbi writes, he explains that what's the, what's the emphasis of Rahmana? Why is God called the merciful one? Because it means that... This is an expression of divine compassion. God is not going to hold something against us that we can't do. So again, very simply stated, someone has a hearing impairment. Someone can't hear. So comes Rosh Hashanah, Mitzvah, to hear the shofar. So person can't hear the shofar, so they feel bad about it. How are they in Judaism? How are they meant to feel? The Talmud says, don't feel bad. There's no negativity here. The merciful one, God who is, who is first and foremost, a God, first of all, God knows exactly what we can and cannot do. So it's not like a surprise. Like God said, oh, I had no idea. God creates the person and ability and disability, etc. So it's not, it's not like, so God knows, God understands, God is compassionate. God, God doesn't hold us to any standard that is obviously, um, what's the word, unrealistic. So if, if, if it's not possible, it's not possible. Rachmana Patre. That's it. However, 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 by the way, and this is true for all of us. I said this class is about Judaism and Torah and mitzvah vis-a-vis disability, but we all have, we all have things that we, for one reason or other, we cannot do. Right? There's all things that we can't do. Right? And so the question is, the question is, how do we perceive that? Here we have a, here we have a, a perspective. However, and this is where the conversation continues. However, one might, one might still feel like still missing something. Because even though it's not held against us, but we still didn't get the mitzvah. Are you with me on that? person might say, okay, so listen, I, the chauffeur, okay, so someone who, can't, who is not able to hear is not obligated to hear the chauffeur, and that's, it's not held against them, obviously, because huh? Rahman Apatri, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not possible, that's it, it is what it is. But a person might still feel bad, one second, I don't get that mitzvah, I'm missing a mitzvah, I'm missing out on a mitzvah, I'm missing out on an opportunity. So for this, we need to go further. We need to go deeper into the conversation. But first, let's introduce another text. Very interesting text. Text number four. This is coming, oh, once again from the Midrash. Okay, here we go. Text number four. Let me pull this up on the board. Linda, please read this one. Rabbi Levy said, God's revelation can be compared to an image with faces on every side. If a thousand people looked at it, it looked back at each of them individually. Similarly, when God spoke, every Jew felt that God spoke to them individually, as the verse states, I am the Lord, your God. So let me explain that for a second. You ever, you know those paintings that have those eyes? 
that when you look at the eyes in the painting, it seems like it's following you around the room? Yeah? And you're like, what kind of creepy painting are you talking about, Rabbi? <laughs> Is it the Mona Lisa? Is it Mona Lisa? Wait, have you seen the Mona Lisa in person? I have. Yes. You have? It was really? Underwhelming. Is it small? Oh, really? Do you know that the most people that ever went to the Mona Lisa is when the Mona Lisa was stolen and they had the space of the Mona Lisa? Did you know that? No. No. This is legit. I saw the Mona Lisa, Ari. Nice. Nice. In person. She's very tiny. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what we're getting. Look at that. He makes a small piece of art. Boom. Priceless. Unbelievable. Got to try my, try, try my hand to some NFTs. If you don't know what NFTs are, don't worry. People are making millions of dollars, non-fungible tokens. Anyway, back to our story. Back to our story. Um, so, so, like, yeah, there's this stuff that... So, the measure says that it's like an image that has faces on every side, and no matter which angle you look at, it's like, oh, it's looking at me. Sounds a little creepy. But nonetheless, the, the analogy is that wherever you're looking from, it seems to be a direct view to you. That is the meaning, says the Medrash, of when it says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. Now you have to know this about suffixes. Um, for the plural, it's just said, Anochi Hashem Elokechem. Elokechem means all y'all's God. Elokecha is your God, individually your God. I, God says, the first commandment, I, Anochi, I, Hashem, I'm God, Elokecha, your God individually. God is speaking to every individual. God says, I am yours, I'm yours, I'm yours. And this, what this, where this goes in the conversation is to say the following. If indeed God is each of ours individually, and if indeed the whole Torah therefore is ours, and the mitzvot is ours, a person might feel like, okay, so I'm off the hook. If I can't do it, you know, based on a disability, etc., I can't do a mitzvah, but I still don't have the full, I still don't have that full, um, perhaps that full connection because I'm, I'm, I'm lacking a mitzvah, which is the question I asked before. I'm, I'm reiterating, I'm not asking a different question. This is the same question, just so we're all clear. So, let, so to that, we have to go further and we just establish the idea that a person should feel like the Torah is theirs. And if it's theirs, they might feel like, well, somebody else can do the mitzvah and I can't, but I'm still missing something. If I can't hear it, then I'm missing the mitzvah. How do we reconcile that? So let's just quickly recap what we've done. So we've talked about We've talked about the experience at Sinai. We said at Sinai, God removed miraculously all disability. We said we live in a world where there is disability. We discussed what are, what's the relationship between Judaism and disability, or specifically Torah mitzvot for people with disabilities. We explained that when there is a disability or any type of extenuating circumstances, of course, a mitzvah that cannot be done is not held against the person. God forbid Hashem in His mercy does not say, oh, well, you missed that. No, it's not. There's no, nothing... It's chas v'sham, God forbid, that it's a negative, it's not a negative, um, we at, but we're now still stuck at a question. It says, okay, so even if it's not a negative, but we're missing out on a positive, we're missing out on an opportunity. So how do we explain that? Yeah. But if God says, no, you're exempt, then if you feel bad, and then aren't you, are you going against God? I mean, uh, so Linda's asking, shouldn't that be enough? If God, says, if God says it's okay, shouldn't that be okay? Good. It should be. It should be. But human nature is such that a person might still feel like, okay, so I don't have to participate, but I feel left out. I still feel left out. Yeah. There's an experience that's happening that other people are having. And bottom line is I still, I still don't feel included. Yeah. Right? My book is what was entitled Inclusion and the Power of the Individual. A person might feel, I'm, I don't feel included. 
I, I, others are engaging in this and I can't and it's fine, but I don't feel included. So let's, that's what, there's room to continue the conversation which, with, and we have such, I think, just game-changing ideas, beautiful ideas um, yet to come in this class. So let's, let's, keep, let's, let's keep moving forward here. The Talmud says the following. Oh, and I should tell you, the rest of the class is going to focus on a rabbi. His name is Rav Yosef. Okay? That's, that's going to be his name, Rav Yosef. So remember that name. Rav Yosef was a Talmudic sage. He was also blind. And Rav Yosef is going to teach us a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about Judaism and disability. Rav Yosef, who couldn't see, is going to teach us a lot about the relationship between Torah, mitzvot, and disability. Very, very important conversation. So let's, let's continue the narrative. Text number five. We have an interesting Talmudic ruling. Um, I'm going to put the text on the screen. Sandrine, I'll ask you to read this in a moment. But first, let me tell you the following. Whatever text five says, you should know is one half of a machloket, one half of a dispute. There is another opinion. But let's first read this opinion, text five. Sandrine, please take it away. Rabbi Yehuda ruled that the blind person was exempt from all the laws of the Torah. Text five, the Talmud in Bavakama quotes Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says that a blind person, a person who cannot see, is exempt from all of the laws of the Torah. Now, the rationale for this is really beyond the scope of today's conversation. It really is. The rationale, this is derived, he derives it from various other verses and other places, and it's, it, it, there's, there's uh, some logical inference, but also some scriptural, textual inference. It's not, it's really beyond the conversation tonight to get into the rationale behind his position. His position is someone who is blind is not obligated in the mitzvot. Not obligated, not obligated. Now, you should know, I, I, before we started this text, I said he's not, that's one, that's one opinion. The majority of the rabbis maintain that it absolutely is an obligation, the mitzvot are obligation. Now, of course, if there's a mitzvah that's dependent on sight, well, that can't be done, but every other mitzvah is applicable. So again, here we have a, a Talmudic debate regarding someone who is blind. The majority of the rabbis say, this is all leading up to a story, but it's important that we have the, the foundation set so we can get into the story with Rav Yosef who himself was blind. So the majority of the sages say someone who is blind is still obligated as many mitzvot as they can do. They're obligated. It's a full obligation. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, someone who's blind is exempt from the mitzvot. Okay. We're skipping text six. Let's get to the story. Text seven, eight. I'm going to pull this up and I'm going to read the story myself. Uh, let me just check in with our online crew. Does this make sense so far? Yes? So far so good? Yeah? Okay. Perfect. Okay. Just making sure we're all on the same page. Let's continue with text 70. Here's the story. From the same page. Tom Bavakama. Rav Yosef, who was blind. It says according to Rashi. I don't like how they did that. It's not according to Rashi. Rashi explains. Rashi fills. Rashi reminds us that Rav Yosef was blind. Rav Yosef, who was blind said the following. When I heard that someone ruled in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda, the, in other words, that someone blind is not obligated in the mitzvot, oh, sorry, yeah, who said that blind people are exempt from mitzvot, I declared a festive day for the sages. I called a holiday. I celebrated. Why? 
because I'm not commanded to do the mitzvot, and yet I do them nonetheless. So again, let, let's break down the story. I want to make sure everyone's on the same, we've got to be on the same page here or else it's not going to work. Rav Yosef, let's start slowly. Rav Yosef, he was, he was blind. He couldn't see. Okay? Rav Yosef cannot see. And there's an opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, which we quoted before, that says someone who can't see, someone who's blind, is not obligated in the mitzvot. So Rav Yosef, when he heard that people, that the halacha, according to some, might be like Rabbi Yehuda, that he himself, he was blind, that he is not obligated in any of the mitzvot, he said, what the, this is the greatest day of my life. Greatest day. Why? Because I just found out that I'm not obligated in the mitzvot, and I still do them anyway. Which means that I'm doing something I don't have to do, which means I get all the credit for going above and beyond my obligation, which means, look, this is amazing. I just found out that I don't have to do any of this, but I still do it. How cool is that? I'm doing what I don't have to do. I'm, I'm not commanded to do the mitzvot, and yet I do them nonetheless. What, what amazing honor and credit I have for going above and beyond my obligation. That's part A of the story. There's a plot twist. 7B. But he said, he continued, the same Rav Yosef. He says, now that I've heard Rabbi Hanina's statement, Rav Yosef continued, that one who's commanded to do the mitzvot has a greater reward than one who is not commanded to do the mitzvot. I declare a festive day for the sages whenever I hear someone rule that the law is not in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda. Why? Because as one who is commanded, I have a greater reward. I'm going to stop this because there's two pieces that are interchangeable and depending on how they turn, that depends on how the logic works. So let me just explain this as absolutely clearly as I can. There are two perspectives when it comes to credit. Is it better? Is it more honorable to do something you didn't have to do or to do something you had to do? You can argue both ways. One argument is, I didn't have to do it and I still did it. Aren't I amazing? I didn't have to do it and I still did it. Oh, pat myself on the shoulder. But the, but the logic, the other logic also works. Think about it. It's sometimes it's easier to do something you don't have to do because then you feel good about it. When you have to do something, you're like, I don't want to do it. You're with me? Psychologically. Think about psychologically. Someone says, okay, let's, let's be very frank here. Relationship. Yeah, you're in a relationship with somebody and you live with them and they're in your house. How often are you holding doors for them? Holding doors open. Right. But when you're at Starbucks, oh, what a gentleman, what a mensch. Why? Because you don't have to. You with me? Ah, you hear where I'm going with this. Right. When you don't have to, when it's chivalrous to do so, sure, I'll hold doors. No problem. Look at me. I'm amazing. All right. I didn't have to and I did it. Oh, look at that. What about when you have to? I don't mean you have to, but like, what, what about when it's an expectation? Eh, get your own door. I'm not saying this, li- no, come on, I'm not saying this literally. I'm just saying that's the psychology, right? Think about it this way. You're not obligated. <coughs> you volunteer, you show up. You're obligated. I don't want to be there. You with me on this, right? Suddenly when you're obligated, it's like, I don't want, I, I, I don't want an obligation because it feels like it feels, now it's suffocating. There's a beautiful analogy brought in Torah scholarship. So a person could stay at home for a few days, you know, they, they, they didn't have to leave the house, it's a long weekend, they stayed at home, you know, in pajamas and Netflix, whatever it is, they're, they're chilling. But what happens when you have to stay at home? Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Feel like you're 
imprisoned. Now you feel imprisoned. Could be the same duration of time. But the question is, do you have to or did you choose to? When it's choice, it's easier to swallow. When it's forced, ugh, there's more resistance when it's forced. So there's two ways to look at getting back to Rav Yosef. Rav Yosef was blind. There's two opinions regarding his status. But beyond those two opinions, there's two opinions to the psychology. Let's talk about the psychology first. One psychology says when you don't have to do something and you do it, that's laudable. You didn't have to do it and you still did it. You still stepped up when you didn't have to. Oh, you volunteered. Slow golf clap. That's amazing. So he felt, so that's what he initially thought. He initially thought that if he didn't have to do it and he did it anyway, that's really cool. He gets a lot of extra credit for it. Extra credit for going above and beyond. So when he heard the opinion of, Ra, Ra, of Rabbi Yehuda, who says he doesn't, as, a, as he as being blind, that he doesn't have to do the mitzvot, but he does them anyway, he's like, yes, I love that opinion. But when he found out the other psychology that says, no, you get more credit when you have to do it and you still do it without, uh, without angst, without anger. Oh, I have to do it. I can't believe it. This is ridiculous. But you do it when you're obligated. So then he liked the other opinion that said, the rabbis, the sage opinion, that he has to do it. So he said, you know, what? you know which one I'll celebrate? I'll celebrate not Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, but the sage's opinion. Because they say that I have to do it. And I have to do it, and I do it, and that gets the most credit. Doing what you have to is even greater than doing something that you don't have to. And that's the way the story ends. And if you're a little bit confused about the different things, you know what? It's okay at this point. Because I want to move on to the next idea. But first, let me summarize this. What we see from here is something powerful. Here we have somebody who lacked the ability to see. He was a person with a disability. He was blind. He couldn't see. And yet, we see clearly here, he did as many mitzvot as he could. That's clear from the story. No matter which logical svara, which logical nuance we take, the bottom line is, what's, what's certain, is that he did as many mitzvot as he had to. And when he thought he wasn't obligated, he still did it. And he felt good about doing something he wasn't obligated to. And when he found out that he was, according to, when he found out that it might be better to do something you have to do, he was hoping he was obligated to do it. Either way, he leaned in to the mitzvah, whether or not he had to do it, whether or not it was obligated, he leaned into it. And this reminds us of something very powerful. And that is, despite our ability, despite what we can or perhaps cannot do, despite what's easier or harder for us, despite exemption or obligation, when we do a mitzvah, there's always value. There's value in doing something we didn't have to. There's value in doing something that you have to. Each one has a value over the other. The point is that, that Rav Yosef reminds us and models for us the idea of maybe not, according to all opinions, being obligated to do something, but doing it anyway. Or maybe being obligated, but it seems a little bit different, but he's doing it anyway. He's, he's leaning, into, leaning into the experience. But the story doesn't end there. Because the same Rav Yosef has an unbelievable declaration. A declaration that relates exactly on point to this week's Torah portion and the experience at Sinai. Take a look at, at this text. This is text 8a from the Talmud. On the holiday of Shavuot. So just to clarify what Shavuot is, to, or to remind what Shavuot is. Shavuot is the holiday that signals the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai the exact experience that we're reading about in this week's Torah portion. 
right? The experience of Sinai with the Ten Commandments, that is what the holiday of Shavuot commemorates. So on the holiday of Shavuot, Rav Yosef, the same Rav Yosef said, the same Rav Yosef who was blind said, prepare for me a choice third-born calf. What's the third-born calf? It's the best calf. Why? I have no idea. But that's always signaled in, uh, in rabbinic uh, parlance as being like the best of the best as far as meat goes. So a third-born calf, he says. In other words, get ready for a real celebration. Why? In explanation, he continued. For without the holiday of Shavuot, listen to what he says. Without this holiday of Shavuot, how many Yosefs would there be in the market? The market, Beshuka. That's what it says, Beshuka. You know, Shuk, you ever hear the word Shuk? The marketplace, the, the streets. How many, how many Yosefs? Now, you know what the English, what, what's the English name for Joseph? Joe. Joe. How many Joe Schmoes would there be? He's basically saying, how many Joes would there be, you know, in the street? I would be another one of them. I would be another Joe. You know, um, um, well, John Doe is usually the anonymous one. Uh, Joe Doe. Joe Doe doesn't sound right. Whatever. Anyway, huh? Joe Schmo, I would just be another guy. I'd be another Joe. Yeah, if not for Shavuot, if not for the giving of the Torah at Sinai, I would just be another Joe. That's what he says. That's what he says. Can I ask one quick question? Yeah, for sure. When it says that the cow, you know, you know, give it, does it have to be the same cow giving it or the third cow in the, in the herd? When he asked for a third-born third calf to be prepared for him, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't know. The third cow born to a mother? Is it a, a cow that's only a third old, a certain age? Or, or a, a, another, another cow. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I don't know about, the, about his preference of food. I'm just saying that that was his way of saying. I was just, listen, I was just, he, he's clearly saying, you know, we would say, like, break out the brisket if you like brisket or break out the sushi if you like sushi. He's saying, break out the good stuff because it's Shavuot because this is the day that I, uh, that I became, you know, that I had the opportunity to become something. Text AP Rashi explains. Let's look at Rashi so we can get, we can get the picture of what, what it means. Rav Yosef means to say, says Rashi, that I studied Torah and became great. Because of Shavuot, I had, Torah was given, I can study Torah and became great. There are many people in the markets named Yosef, and aside from the Torah I study, there's nothing to differentiate between me and them. He's basically saying that Shavuot gave me the capacity to study Torah, and to become something, to become great, in this case, to become connected, not just, you know, it's not on an ego, it's not on an ego level, but it's the ability to connect with God's Torah, to connect with them. So, what we have here is something powerful. It's something powerful. The idea that whether or not a person is obligated, technically, according to Jewish law, because of ability or disability, a person might, you know, have a disability and therefore not be required. We said before that, that Oynes Rahman Apatri. That's someone who is, you know, is someone who can't, or someone who, you know, just doesn't have the ability, doesn't have to. But what if someone who doesn't have the ability, listen to this, what if somebody with a disability nonetheless tries and does the mitzvah, even though maybe it's not exactly the same way that somebody that doesn't have the disability does it. But they do it. They do it in their own way. You know what? It's a beautiful thing. It's a, and this is what we learn from Rav Yosef. Rav Yosef, I know the story turns around where he, he was obligated at the end, if, doesn't matter. The bottom line is his first thought is also right. And that is he wasn't exactly obligated, but even without the obligation, 
it's still a beautiful experience to study Torah and do a mitzvah, even with a disability or even despite a disability, however you want to phrase it. The Torah and the mitzvot is beautiful and is infinitely valuable. Take a look at how the Rebbe phrases this um, in a letter that the Rebbe wrote. Text number nine. This is a letter that I quoted in my book, although, I mean, I'm going to have a little bit of a beef now, maybe a third-born calf beef, with Torah studies here because they quoted the letter from a different book as opposed to, I also have it in my book, but, but at least when I, was, when I was preparing it, I'm like, text nine, I'm like, they could have quoted it from my book, but then I saw text 15, I'm like, okay, fine. They gave love to multiple books, so it's okay. Text nine, look what the Rebbe writes. The Rebbe wrote this in a long series of letters regarding disability in the Jewish community. Here's what the Rebbe writes. The actual practice of mitzvahs in everyday life provides a tangible way by which these special people of all ages can, despite their handicap, identify with their families and with other fellow Jews in their surroundings and generally keep in touch with reality. Even if Mentally, they may not fully grasp the meaning of these rituals. Subconsciously, they are bound to feel at home in such an environment and in many cases could participate in such activities also on the conscious level. The Rebbe is addressing, I feel like I need to give a drop of context here. The Rebbe is addressing the question, should a person or people with disabilities, should they be encouraged to celebrate a holiday? Should they be encouraged to do a mitzvah? Or should they be discouraged? Like, or should they say, yeah, you know what, it's, it's fine, that they don't have to. What, what's... what's where should we go with this? And the Rebbe was advocating as many opportunities, Jewish, for a Jewish person with disabilities, as many opportunities as possible. Obviously, no pressure, and no, but as many opportunities as possible. And the Rebbe speaks about spiritual connection, social connection, family connection. Right? What does it look like if the rest of the family is celebrating Hanukkah? And this child does not celebrate Hanukkah, right? How does the child feel? The child picks up that they're, they're being excluded. So it's all about, again, the word I'm using is inclusion here. It's all about inclusion. The Rebbe was all about inclusion. By the way, also what you'll notice here, the Rebbe referred to individuals with disabilities as special people. Not special needs, but special people. This is based on the Rebbe's philosophy before, you know, the... the, the um, the popular phrase became special needs. The Rebbe used the word mitsuyanim, special, not the need is special, the person is special. It's a difference. Special needs mean the need is unique. The, the, the special is a, is a description of the need. Special needs means that the, need, the person has special needs. That's not what the Rebbe says. That's not how the Rebbe ever referred to individual disabilities. Special people. The Rebbe said, if somebody is missing an ability or somebody has a compromised ability in a certain area, Hashem surely has given them additional strength in other areas. So why focus on the area in which they may have a, a, a challenge, focus on the areas in which they have a special quality, special individuals, special people. That was the Rebbe's position on this, and the Rebbe used it in language. There's a letter that the Rebbe wrote in the 1970s. This is before, you know, PC language. This is, I don't even know if the right word is PC, but this is way before that. This is groundbreaking. Okay, you can see I'm passionate about this topic. I wrote a book on it even. <laughs> to cite one striking example from actual experience during the Festival of Sukkot this year, the Rebbe writes, as is well-known, Lubavitch activities on this occasion reach out to many Jews with lulav and etrog, bringing to them the spirit of the season of our rejoicing. Just uh, parenthetically, if you've ever encountered 
um, a mitzvah tank. You know what a mitzvah tank is? It's like an RV. Yeah, it's an RV, a mobile mitzvah experience. Yeah, they have them in like Manhattan and in other bigger cities. Mitzvah mobile, yeah. Yeah, the Rebbe called it tank because the Rebbe said, we are in an army fighting uh, to bring light into the, a positive army, fighting for love, peace, and light. Um, why should tanks only be used for destructive purposes? Let's use a tank for a constru- The Rebbe was all about transformation, transforming language into, uh, into a, uh, oh, mitzvah thing. Where is that? Manhattan? In front of 770. In 770. Look at that. Sandrine's got a, got a shot of mitzvah tanks and crinites. So the Rebbe says, this past Sukkot, right? There was lulav and etrog happening, you know, going out to the streets. This year being back inside, this year being a year of hakel, a year of gathering, following the sabbatical year, I urge my followers to extend this activity as much as possible to include also nursing homes and senior citizen uh, hotels as well as other institutions. I was asked, what should the attitude, what should be the attitude and approach to persons who are senile or confused, etc.? I replied, the Rebbe's writing about himself, right? He's saying his dial, his inner. I replied, says the Rebbe, all the more reason to reach out to them in this tangible way. Well, what happened? The reports were profoundly gratifying. Doctors and nurses were astonished to see such a transformation. Persons who had spent countless days in silent immobility, deeply depressed and oblivious to everything around them, the moment they saw a young man walk in with a lulav and etrog in his hand, suddenly displayed a lively interest, eagerly grasped the proffered uh, mitzvah objects, some of them reciting blessings from memory without prompting the joy in their hearts shown through their faces, which had not known a smile all too long. I can share with a personal experience, personal experiences. For a few years, for a few years, I had the opportunity to grow up in Pittsburgh in high school. We used to go every Friday. I went to um, a, uh, an older care facility um, near the waterfront, what's it called? Rivers. Side, Riverview, Riverview? Riverview. Riverview. And I went there and I remember the people. I literally remember that. I was there for a few years. Every Friday we were there. We used to sing. We used to make Kiddush. This was, I mean, it wasn't an official Kiddush. It was still Friday afternoon. It wasn't yet Shabbat. But we lit ceremonial candles and we did Kiddush and we sang songs and we brought cheer. And the smile on the faces of the individuals there, it literally made people's weeks. It, it, you could see it. You, and they told us, and they told us as much. And it, it sounds like obvious, and it's not doesn't sound like something novel. But you know what? At a certain time and a place, it was novel. It was a novelty. Because people were just left and, 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 and forgotten and said, no, you know what? They, at this point, they don't understand. They don't remember. That's it. They're gone. And the Rebbe said, still give mitzvah opportunities. It doesn't matter. Yes, yes, like we said before, maybe there's no obligation. Maybe there's a patre, you know, at this point, they're exempt. They're exempt. But every mitzvah is beautiful. Even if it's not exactly the way it might have looked in another scenario, it doesn't matter. It's a mitzvah. It's beautiful. It connects us to, a, to, to, to community, to family, to tradition, to past, to history, to God. And it's beautiful on so many different levels. This is, yes. You know what, Ray, hold on one second. We're right at the time. So let's hold. I, I know that you want to share a, a story. I could tell. So if you can, hold it till we, I want to just wrap up. So just out of respect for everyone's time. So just, we'll do, and I just have like one more point to make quickly, and then, and then we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so what we've said so far, I just want to recap what we said and then make one more point. What we've said so far is really two things. Number one, someone who can't do a mitzvah is obviously not obligated to do the mitzvah. They're exempt from the mitzvah. 
At the same time, even if they're exempt from the mitzvah, if they make an effort to do the mitzvah, it's a beautiful thing. And every effort should be made to help facilitate that person's ability on whatever level to do a mitzvah. And in that way, we address the question we asked before. At the end of the day, even if you're exempt, but you're still missing out, so what's the solution? So then, uh, so provide opportunities as much as possible so that no one misses out, right? To whatever level, even if it's not exactly the way it, it looks for someone else. Every mitzvah, every taste of a mitzvah, every iota of a mitzvah is profoundly valuable, so no one should be left out as much as possible. But there's one more level to this, one more level, and that is not only can the person do the mitzvah on some level, but they can be an inspiration to others doing the mitzvah. And by being an inspiration, and this is true, anyone who's ever encountered someone with a disability knows how unbelievably inspiring they can be. And when someone with a disability inspires another person in their own Yiddishkeit, in their own Jewishness, by seeing a person's face light up by doing a mitzvah. Isn't that inspiring to the individual perceiving that? And by that inspiration, guess what? The person with a disability has now inspired another person, another person, another person to do a mitzvah, and all of that, all of the incredible schus, all of the incredible merit goes back. And it goes back to the one who started, who started that inspiration reaction. And all of this all of this is, we have text 10 from the Talmud. I'm not going to put it up here and read it inside. It says someone who, help, who brings someone else to do a mitzvah, it's like they did the mitzvah themselves. Right? If you inspire someone else to do a mitzvah, if you help them do a mitzvah, it's like you've done it. It's like you've done it. And in this context, we have a powerful idea. In this context, it means like this. I'm trying to find the text that kind of brings it together that I can share with you. One more text. Um, Text 14. Getting back to Rav Yosef, who was the rabbi, who was blind, who wasn't sure if he was obligated or not, but you know what he was? Whether or not he was obligated, it doesn't matter. He was a tremendous Torah scholar to the point that they called him, listen to this, all connected to this with Torah portion. They call, his nickname, his nickname was Sinai. L listen to this. His nickname was Sinai. Why do you think Sinai? Because he had such a vast knowledge of Torah he was like Mount Sinai. That, they literally called him Sinai. We have text that I just skipped, text 13, that refers to him as, as uh, the Talmud refers to him literally as Sinai. He was, his scholarship was brilliant. So guess what? The fact that he taught so much Torah and inspired so many people, despite his ability or disability, certain mitzvot, he couldn't see, therefore, even if he wasn't exempt, was exempt, maybe he couldn't do, you know, how do you say the blessing on the fire? I'm Havdalah. If you can't see it, if you can't see it, you can't see it, right? Despite that, despite whatever, he did whatever he could do and whatever he couldn't do, he did, to, he did as much as he could. But the bottom line is he taught so much Torah. He got, all, he got so much incredible blessings from the teaching of Torah. And the message, I'm not finishing the message yet because I do want to read this. Um, and the message is a powerful one. This is text 14, though. First, let's do text 14, and then I'm going to wrap it up with a message. Okay. All the people, all people had, the Rebbe writes this, all people had need of Rav Yosef's Torah, his Torah teachings, and everyone lived their lives according to his rulings and teachings. <coughs> this includes those who were commanded to do the mitzvot and were thus able to do the mitzvot in a manner that completely transformed the material world. 
It was through this achievement that Rav Yosef became great. Through, his, through this achievement, Rav Yosef transformed the material world. He himself, again, whether or not he did this mitzvah or that mitzvah, he taught Torah, he inspired others, they did the mitzvot, he, he transformed the world through his influence. This is why Rav Yosef used this language. Remember he said, if not for this day of Shavuot, there would be, I would be like any other Joe in the marketplace. That's why he says, that's why he used this language. Through the new quality added to the world, the Torah, the ability to alter the physical world with mitzvot, or God forbid the opposite, Rav Yosef, as the sign of his generation, brought about change in the physical world, despite the fact that he was blind, and therefore, according to one opinion, not commanded to perform the mitzvot. Whether or not he was commanded to do the mitzvot, obligated to do the mitzvot, is a subject of debate, and we, there's no reason for us to get into that debate. But even according to the one that says he wasn't, Obligated. He still did whatever he could. And even those mitzvot that he couldn't do, he inspired others to do. And when they did it, it's like he got it. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that Judaism is for everyone. That Judaism is as inclusive as possible. Judaism is all about inclusion. Judaism is all about giving opportunities and, and, and creating the space of connection for everyone, whether directly, whether they themselves are doing it, whether they are doing it, whether they're doing it as an obligation, whether they're doing it as not an obligation, whether they're doing it in, a, in maybe not the full way, but a partial way, or whether they're not even doing it at all, but they're inspiring others to do it. Inspiring others to do it. Others walk in and they see a person. They see a person who's inspired, whose face lights up, and they're inspired to do a mitzvah. Guess what? That mitzvah now becomes attributed to the one who inspired it. And that is the way the Rebbe responded to questions about disability, including text number 15, which, as you'll see here, is quoted from my book on inclusion. So let's finish off with this. Text 15, okay, there you go. I told you there was a text 15. I told you I was quoted. Here it is. Here it is. This is a story with Cantor Malavani. Cantor Malavani is a cantor in Manhattan. I don't know if he's still active, but he was. I think he's still alive. Two sons, his older son has uh, disabilities. Listen to this. After introducing his wife and young, I'm reading what I wrote, which is a little bit weird, but okay, it is what it is. Yeah. After introducing his wife and younger son and receiving the Rebbe's blessings for them, Cantor Malavani asks for a blessing for his older son, Zevi. We have another son who unfortunately is not well. He is autistic. He needs a blessing. That's the quote from Cantor Malavani to the Rebbe. By the way, this is all on video. You can Google Malavani, Cantor Malavani, Lubavitcher Rebbe, and you'll find the video and you'll see it. It's in, it's, uh, in Yiddish with English subtitles. This is, this is the story. So he asked for a blessing from the Rebbe. The Rebbe responds by lovingly offering that although autistic people might experience challenges in interpersonal relationships, they can relate very closely to God. Listen to this quote that the Rebbe says. While they're not busy with people, they're busy with God. That's what the Rebbe, that's what the Rebbe says to, to Cantor Malavani. The Rebbe then suggests that Zevi, his son, has a deep spiritual and Jewish connection, a connection that ought to be nurtured. This rings true. Zevi has, after all, responded well to Jewish practices in the past. Cantor Malavani tells the Rebbe that Zevi has expressed excitement when being taught to recite a blessing over food, and he treasures his tzitzit. Does he have, listen to this, the Rebbe then asks, does he have a tzedakah box in his room? No. You can put one in there, says the Rebbe. The facility won't mind. Charity is something everyone allows. It will benefit him, and when people visit him, remind them that they must give charity. That last line, that last line is gold. The Rebbe was saying, don't just encourage your son to do as much as he can. 
Don't just continue to ignite and reignite and re-inspire his Jewish neshama, which must be done. Never neglect it. But more than that, allow your child to be an influencer of others. Put the tzedakah box in there and let him tell all the doctors and all the therapists and all the visitors, anyone who walks in his room, let him be the one to teach them about tzedakah. The Rebbe's vision is absolutely incredible. The Rebbe taught us how to view the power of the individual. That everyone has a connection and everyone's connection ought to be, everyone's connection deserves to be nurtured. There's no one that we should ever say, well, they, they can't. They can't, then they don't have to, so it's done. Never, God forbid, to say such a thing. Even when there's no obligation, do it anyway. Even when there's no obligation, encourage. And even when there's no obligation, encourage them to encourage others, not just because they're going to get the credit, as I said before, but because that will inspire them as well. And so in the final analysis, Torah and Mitzvot has a place for everyone. What's the Jewish view on disability? Certain things are obviously not obligatory. If something can't be done, it can't be done. But even when it can't be done, Maybe in uh, a certain way it can be done, in a different way. And certainly when it can be done, it, it, it should be done, it should be encouraged to the extent possible. Obviously every disability is different. No, one, no two disabilities are alike, no two individuals are alike. And yet we have some overarching values. The overarching values that, that, that drive the conversation are Judaism is the right of every single person. It's the inheritance of every single yid. It's when God gave us the Torah, he said, Anochi Hashem I am the Lord, your God. Which means we have to see to it and we have to dedicate our lives and be devoted to the fact that every individual has the ability for their connection to be nurtured. Not collectively, but individually. And so therefore, it behooves us to put that attention, put that focus in our communities, in our organizations, and in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, to make sure that every individual has what they need and that every, every individual is celebrated, every individual realizes, recognizes that they have a place, that they're welcome. In the book, my book on inclusion, there is a pretty radical conversation between the rabbi and another rabbi. This other rabbi was a halachic scholar and he, was writing, he wrote a book of modern Jewish laws and he wrote there speaking of the inability to see, he spoke there about guide dogs, right? The guide dogs for the blind. And the rabbi writes that it, presumably it's not permitted to be brought into a shul. This other rabbi wrote in his book, in a footnote, presumably you're not supposed to bring a dog into shul, and so presumably it, a guide dog is not allowed. The rabbi wrote back, I guess this guy sent a copy of the book to the rabbi to look at or whatever it is. The Rebbe writes back, and the letters, letters published, it's in the book, I translate it in English. Every effort should be made, from a halakhic perspective, to find a way to allow it. Why should we take the position to be exclusive to anyone who wants to come into synagogue? Why should we look for ways to keep people out of shul? We should look for ways to be more inclusive, to bring everyone in. And yes, if there has to be a dog, all right, find a way. Find a way to make it happen. Don't be exclusive, be inclusive. Just wanted to end with that one. Again, the book that I wrote, I'm not, I, don't, I don't get commission, but it's, 
it, the whole book is all about the, the Rebbe's perspective and the Jewish perspective on inclusion. This class is one taste of it. We learn from Rav Yosef, who was blind. He says, How beautiful, how wonderful it is to have the opportunity to have Torah. Because Torah gives us this insight into our ability to really ensure that everyone, everyone's voice is heard, that everyone is seen, and no one is left behind. May we be committed to this endeavor. And I know many of you are deeply committed to this endeavor. Um, may we be committed to this endeavor to seeing that everyone indeed find their place, has a place, and is welcome in our communities, in our synagogues, in Judaism, in Torah, and never feels left behind. All right, friends, thank you very much for joining, and uh, thank you. So, Ray, jump in. I know you wanted to share a story. Ray, jump in. Yes, I do. My sister's Down syndrome, and um, she lived to be 59, but my other sister, Lillian, the one that passed away recently, um, she, um, she exposed Sally to all the Jewish holidays, and Sally got so excited, she loved to dance and sing um, and as soon as it was holiday time and we brought her home and she could light candles, um, she just was a joy. I mean, a joy to the people in the facility where she lived that even those that were not Jewish were excited because Sally was excited <laughs> and Sally had the opportunity in her own way to explain the holidays to, to the other people that were there. And, um... And she lived to the age of 59. Amazing. And I think that's due to my sister Lillian, who just passed away, who um, devoted her life to disabilities. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's very true. Um, yeah. If you can bring someone and then they share with it, the person who has a disability shares with others, it makes it much more meaningful. Uh, Ray, thank you very much for sharing that. It's extremely heartfelt, and I, I had the, many of us had the incredible opportunity to meet Lillian, and I, I never met Sally, but Lillian was a very special woman, and, yes. and my conversations and coming over to your house and seeing the book that was, that was made by Lillian's colleagues and friends about her work for so many years with for people with people with disability, your sister was a was a champion and pioneer in this field of working with people with disability, and um, very very special. Yes. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing that. So I, I don't know if it's like in Hebrew for blind, if it says someone who doesn't see the light. Sagi Nahar, very interesting. They use yeah. yeah. It means it means too much light. It means too much light. You know, in the teaching about that, like, how do we know we don't see the light? Right. It, in, the, in, the, in the, I don't know if it's Aramaic or Hebrew, it's called sagi nahar. A person who's blind is referred to sagi nahar. That means a lot, an abundance of light. A person who's blind. A person who's blind. It's an abundance of light. Now, that could either be seen as a, euph as like a, like a, 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 a euphemism of the opposite, or it's like we call um, a cemetery, a Beit HaChaim, a house of the living. Beit Chaim. We call a cemetery a Beit Chaim, a house of the living. Uh, yeah, yeah. The question is why. So typically, it's understood as a as a euphemism of the opposite. We to, we don't want to say a Beit Hametim, a house of the dead. So because it's just not nice. So we say a house of life, but we mean we don't mean life. We mean the opposite. So Saginar means they have a lot of light, but it means the opposite. They don't. They can't see. But the Rebbe always explained that no, it means literally. 
Beit HaChayim, a cemetery, is where true life is found. The, the body is a limitation on true life. The true life is the soul. So where the body is laid to rest, that's where, that's where spirits are really alive, so to speak. And the same thing with Shuvah Nar, person who can't see, right, physically with the eyes, they have perception that's opened in other areas. There's an abundance of perception that's opened up in other areas. So there's an abundance of light on, on one level. The Rebbe took these things literally. The Rebbe didn't say, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a wink to the opposite. No. The Rebbe said, if it's, that's what it says, it must mean something, even in its literal meaning. Jay, do you want to say something? Did you want to jump in? Yes, I, uh, there's a class that I helped put together. I do a fair amount of lay leadership work with, with, uh, with, the, uh, with very special pe- people. And Ray Gray, if people know, no way is down syndrome and she's on the class and the class was about uh the uh chosen of the chosen tribe and the question was what's precious to you and rachel grace said my soul is precious to me Mm. because my soul teaches me how to talk to god wow that's beautiful that is beautiful yeah and I think uh, I want to acknowledge Jay. Jay, you're a leader in our community here in Atlanta in, the, in regard to working with special people and making sure that uh, Jewish opportunities and other opportunities are available. So, Jay, thank you very much. You're, uh, you're a really incredible person, and um, what you do is amazing. I also want to mention, just a plug, there is an organization affiliated with Chabad here in, in, in Atlanta called Friendship Circle and uh, run by some dear friends of mine and colleagues, Rabbi Mrs. Friedman, Shlemy and Chanki Friedman. And um, I had the opportunity to speak for <coughs> the, some of the leadership uh, in, in a group last year. And again, in March, I'm gonna be speaking and, and addressing a, um, uh, a group that they have put together. So there's a lot of work that's being done and there's a lot of of guidance in Judaism and guidance from the Rebbe on this. So it's very inspiring. Everyone who has the opportunity to work in this area, in this field is Kodesh HaKadoshim, Holy of Holies. So all, all, to all of you who continue in this work, um, may Hashem grant you success for all of, for all of um, us, uh, for all of those who perhaps have not had a chance yet to, to work in this field. There are volunteer opportunities available, certainly, and uh, perhaps consider it. It's a, it's a life-changing thing. All right, thank you very much for joining. I think we'll, we'll formally close out the, uh, the broadcast. And um, I want to mention, thank you all for, for joining me tonight. Thank you for being part of this group. And uh, we'll be back next week for Torah Studies, Same Bad Time, Same Bad Channel. But before then, just a quick plug for the new JLI course that's starting next week, Tuesday night and Thursday afternoon. Two opportunities. It's called Meditation from Sinai. And it's absolutely incredible. Spirit, Jewish spirituality Jewish meditation, Jewish mindfulness, authentic Judaism and meditation. Even if you're not into meditation, you want to be at this course because it's about spirituality and mindfulness and transformative ideas. So join me for this. If you're not yet signed up, get in on this. It's amazing. In fact, I'll tell you an anecdote. Just we'll close out with this story. I was was here uh, at at our center on the Beltline yesterday. And in the afternoon, I uh, decided to take a quick stroll up to Kroger to pick up a few things. And then it's like a two-minute walk across Ponce and the bridge, and then you went to Kroger. And as I'm walking out of Kroger, I have a few bags of stuff, walking back here to Chabad. It's probably like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3, 4 o'clock. And a woman st- uh, stops me. She's right, right outside of Kroger sitting down, and she says, 
are you the rabbi from down, from, from around here? I said, yeah. She says, okay, because um, I saw something about a meditation course. I'm like, meditation course? I happen to be teaching the meditation course. So she's like, oh, you're Rabbi Ari? I'm like, yeah, I'm Rabbi Ari. Anyway, it's very funny. She says, uh, she's not Jewish, but she says, does, does you have to be Jewish to attend? I said, no. And uh, she signed up within, within a few minutes after that conversation. It's, uh, why am I saying this story? I don't know. It was just a, a, a little bit of, a, of an interesting story, a wild story that just happened yesterday. And, and I, I think there's an interest. There's a, there's a broad interest in this. And Baruch Hashem, thank God, we have a very nice group together for this course. If you're not yet signed up, I think you want to be signed up for this course or at least try it out. There's always the try, try before you buy option. Check out the first class with no obligation to continue. In town, jewishacademy.org slash meditation. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. All right. Thank you for joining. We'll see you guys. Lila Tov. Be blessed. Lots of blessings. Bye, everyone.